I want to start with just a few of the words and phrases that I heard in the last few days that have been used to describe what is going on in our country right now. Unprecedented, surreal, incitement, bloodshed, seditious, armed surrection, an assault on democracy, an attempted violent overthrow of the government, treason, domestic terrorist, one of the darkest days in recent American history. And I didn't pull these words off social media or find them on a news app. These are all words and phrases that were spoken on the House and Senate floor by both Democratic and Republican lawmakers who had been rushed to a secure location fearing for their, fearing for their lives. Well, these are the days in which we lived. And we had hoped that 2021 was going to be better somehow. If you have your Bible handy, please turn to Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. In the third chapter of Luke, we see that just as Luke did at the beginning of his gospel, with the mention of the days of Herod, the king, in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, he mentioned the days of Caesar Augustus. Now, Luke shows us once again in chapter 3 that the gospel is rooted in actual history. The gospel of Jesus Christ is rooted in an actual time, an actual place with real events, real people who lived in very, very bad times and in very difficult circumstances. They were turbulent times, much like our own. They were evil times, both politically, socially, and spiritually as well, much like our own. John the Baptist came on the scene as a voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord in a very dark and wicked time. When politically there was wickedness and intrigue and conspiracies, and religiously there was a degenerate priesthood, the priests had aligned themselves politically with Rome for their own advantage, for their own power, for their own control, and mostly for wealth. Things were dark politically, and they were dark spiritually as well. But there was good news in bad times, and the same good news for bad times that we are going through today. It's in Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconitus, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low, the crooked will become straight, and the rough roads smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we come together in this really remarkable way today, Lord, being in different places and different homes and uh, even around the country, Father, but through this medium, we can be together and look at your word together, Father.
and we thank you for that. And Father, during these difficult times in which we live and unprecedented times in which we live, both with the pandemic and the, the, the upheaval that's in our country right now, Lord, Father, I pray that we'd be able to focus our minds and focus on our hearts so that we might hear what you have to say to each one of us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was against the political or the dark backdrop of political and religious darkness that the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And the names mentioned in verse 1 establish the dark political environment of the Roman governance. Luke tells us that it was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Well, we've looked at Caesar Augustus, and now we come to Tiberius Caesar. And Tiberius was the stepson of Caesar Augustus. And Tiberius reigned from A.D. 14 through A.D. 37. And his mention here, Luke is reminding us that Rome had dominion over Israel, and Rome controlled with a brutal iron hand. Tiberius was feared by those who sought to overthrow him, or like the Jews, those who would fight for their independence from Rome. And the wrath of Tiberius was wrought against any form of perceived sedition and even actual sedition. After there was a plot to overthrow Tiberius in Rome by his trusted consul named Sejanus, the historian Tacticus records concerning Tiberius, executions were now a stimulus to his fury. And Tiberius ordered the death of all who were lying in prison under accusation of complicity with Sejanus. There lay singly or in hips, heaps the unnumbered dead of every age and sex, the illustrious with the obscure. Kinsfolks and friends were not allowed to be near them, to weep over them, or even to gaze on them too long. Spies were set round them who noted the sorrow of each mourner and followed the rotting corpses till they were dragged to the Tiber, were floating or driven to the bank. No one dared to burn or to touch them. Such was Tiberius Caesar. And he was the one who appointed Pontius Pilate as governor of Judea. So the intrigue goes even deeper. In order to gain favor with Tiberius, Pontius Pilate wanted to gain favor with Tiberius, and he wanted to be appointed governor of Judea. And so Pontius Pilate had buddied up to Sejanus, the traitor. He'd become the traitor, but at the time, Sejanus was close to, to Tiberius. And so as a result of this, Sejanus endorsed Pilate to be governor of Judea, knowing that at some point he could call in his favors from Pilate and others when he took control of Rome, knowing that a military governor of Judea would be a very powerful ally. So the shore of the political intrigue in Judea was, when Pilate was governor, is that after the failed insurrection of Sejanus, Tiberius constantly questioned Pilate's loyalty. Everything Pilate did in governing Judea was under a cloud of suspicion of sedition. Was Pilate loyal to Tiberius, or was he part of the insurrection? Everything Pilate did was under this cloud, including the washing of his hands at the trial of Jesus. Pilate was trying to save his own skin. 
Pilate was caught in the dangerous and politically deadly predicament of having to placate the emperor on one side and at the same time appease the Jews. Luke also mentions Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the son of the wicked Herod the Great. He reigned over Galilee from 4 BC, taking over after his father until AD 39. He would later imprison and then behead John. Herod's brother Philip ruled over a region to the east and north of Galilee. Lysanias was governor of Abilene further to the northeast. And then in verse 2 of Luke chapter 3, we see the establishment of the dark religious environment at the time. The high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Here we meet really two crumbs of history. Two despicable individuals who will go down in history and have gone down in history as the lowest of the low. They definitely fit into the Bible's gallery of scoundrels. We see the, the character of these two guys when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. John records that Jesus was first taken to the house of Annas, who was the high priest, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. How can you have two high priests at the same time? It sounds really confusing. And this is the tangled web of religious evil. So let me try to untangle it a little bit. Why was Jesus taken to the high priest Annas' house first? before they tried him at the house of Caiaphas, the current high priest. Now, even though Annas wasn't serving as high priest at the time of Jesus' arrest, he was still the religious power broker at the time. God had intended and declared in his law that the position of high priest was a lifetime appointment. It was an appointment for life. It had to be someone in the lineage of Aaron, the first high priest. Supposed to be a lifetime appointment. Now, Annas most likely had the legitimate right to be high priest. He was appointed high priest in the year A.D. 6, and he served as high priest until A.D. 15, about nine years. To put it in historical context, Annas would have been the high priest when Jesus, at age 12, confounded the scholars in the temple. But in A.D. 15, Annas bent to the pressure of the Romans, who wanted the office of high priest to be a puppet of Rome, to be an appointment of Rome. Rome would now appoint the high priest in Jerusalem. In a political sense, King Herod was the puppet of Rome. In the religious sense, Annas, the high priest, was a puppet of Rome. And in A.D. 15, when the Romans said, okay, now you've got to pay for this position, as it were, Annas was already a very powerful and rich guy. So when the Romans offered the position to the highest bidder, this gave Annas the ability to still be in control and be the power behind the high priest office. Over the next seven high priests after Annas, five were his sons, one was a grandson, and one was his son-in-law, Caiaphas. That's called nepotism. Every time the position came up for bid, Annas was able to purchase it for one of his boys. But everybody knew who the mob godfather was, as it were, controlling everything behind the scenes. In order to be the high priest, you had to get down on the ground, kiss Rome's feet, and leave a lot of money there. You bought the office. It was a matter of intrigue, a matter of contention and, and corruption and, and bribery. And so Annas was loaded with money, so he just kept buying out the high priest office, and consequently, 
He was always in control. So this set the stage for Annas being involved in Jesus' trial and Jesus being taken to his house first, where Caiaphas, the current high priest, would be just a puppet for Annas. Now, Annas was the biggest briber because he had a lot of money, and it's really interesting and significant to learn how he earned his money. Annas was in charge of the temple concessions. When he got bounced from the high priesthood, he took over running the temple concessions, and he was a real operator. He became the biggest cog in the ecclesiastical machine of Jerusalem. He ran the show. He was immensely wealthy and could consequently buy his way into all these offices and run the show behind the scenes. And so what were the temple concessions that made Annas so rich? It wasn't hot dogs, it wasn't popcorn, it wasn't Cokes like at a ball game. The concessions had to do with the animal sacrifices, for the sale of the animal sacrifices. When people came to the temple to make a sacrifice, they came into the outer court called the Court of the Gentiles. And in the court, there was all these concession booths set up for the exchange of money because the people would have to pay a temple tax. People came from all over. If they brought their foreign money without the temple stamp on their money, they'd have to exchange it for the temple money at an exorbitant rate, of course. And also, if a person came to make a sacrifice, Annas had another monopoly going. Every sacrifice had to be inspected by a priest. For example, a lamb bought, brought for Passover had to be without spot or blemish, and when they presented to the priest, no one's animal passed the inspection. They could always find a spot. They could always find a blemish. And they had to go over to one of Annas's concession booths and purchase an animal an exorbitant price, as much as 10 times what the animal was worth. So when you came to the temple, you first exchanged your money for five times the price, and you exchanged your animal at 10 times the price. And so the high priest had a real racket going. And as long as one of his boys was the high priest, they were all going to benefit. Annas made his money on extortion, and the area around the temple ground became known as the Bazaar of Annas. In fact, the Jews themselves hated him. They knew they were getting ripped off. The Talmud in Jewish writings of the time said of Annas and his family, Woe to the house of Annas! Woe to their serpent's hiss! They are high priests. Their sons are keepers of the treasury. Their sons-in-law, guardians of the temple. And their servants beat the people with staves. Now, according to the Gospel of John, after Jesus began his ministry, he was baptized by John, and then he went uh, began his ministry. The first time he went to Jerusalem for Passover, Jesus struck right at the heart of Annas' racket. In the second chapter of John, you don't need to turn to it, second chapter of John, verse 14, John writes that when Jesus found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables, he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and those who were selling the doves he said, take these things away, stop making my house, my father's house, a place of business. This struck right at the heart of Annas' operation. This was a big money loser at the height of the Passover season. Then the other Gospels tells us that right after Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday, 
Jesus did the same thing again at the end of his ministry. This was really getting bad for business. Annas hated Jesus because it had been hit right where it hurts. So when Jesus was arrested, they first took him to Annas' house, and then his crummy son-in-law Caiaphas comes into the picture. When we are introduced to Annas, we're also introduced to his crummy son-in-law. It says in John 18, And they led Jesus to Annas first, for he was father was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it was expedient for a man to die on behalf of the people. Now by this time, Caiaphas had been plotting Jesus' death for some time. That's how purchased politicians are. They are scared all the time. They know they didn't get into the office because of ability, and they're always hanging on by a thread. Caiaphas is scared to death. He loves his wealth. He loves the prestige of his office, and he sees Jesus moving in on his territory. So when Anna sends Jesus to Caiaphas, it begins that, that whole sham and pretense of a trial with the scribes and the elders. When I had the privilege of going to Israel in 2005, one of the sites that we visited was the excavated and restored house of Caiaphas. It was Caiaphas's actual house. And I'd read about the trials of Jesus in the Gospels, but actually seeing where it took place was a real eye-opener into the evil and character of Caiaphas. Of all things, Caiaphas had a dungeon and torture chamber in his basement, under his house, in the caves under there. And I remember looking down into that pit and wondering out loud, what would a high priest do with such a thing in his basement? As well as shackles and chains, there was an open pit. The prisoner would have a rope tied under their arms, below their arms, and then he would hang in that pit and they lowered him down till his toes just barely touched the ground and he'd be left hanging there in pain until they were ready to question him. In this case, until everyone arrived and then Jesus would have painfully dangled back into the pit until he was taken to Pilate. It was against this backdrop of political and religious darkness of bad times that verse 2 of Luke chapter 3 says, In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. In this dark time of political and spiritual corruption, the word of God came to the son of Zacharias, John in the wilderness. This phrase should affect us like a beam of sunlight. It's a breath of fresh air that would come to trapped miners. The word of God came to John. Now, if Luke had said that in these bleak times, the word of a new government plan to reduce poverty had come to Pilate. We would say so a lot. That's what they do all the time. You know, somebody runs for re-election or election. They've got all these plans, all these programs. This is how we're going to solve all the problems of our country. And I'm the one to do it. We'd say, you know, that's what, you know, just what we expect to do. 
or if Luke had said the word of a new program to increase religious involvement among the Jews had come to Annas and Caiaphas. We would say, ho-hum. Oh, you know, that, that's what people try to do all the time. What, what's new about that? Turn over to, to Luke chapter 13 for a moment. The 13th chapter of Luke at verse 1. In the 13th chapter of Luke, we find a reference to an attempted political and civil solution to one of the severe problems in Jerusalem at the time. And I want to read verse 1 of Luke chapter 13, then I'll explain a little bit of what's going on here. Verse 1 of chapter 13 of Luke. Now on that same occasion, Jesus had been talking on that occasion about when he came, he came to divide that there would be mother against daughter and daughter against mother and so forth and all these things that, uh, you know, the gospel message, Jesus himself is a dividing influence because there's either people for Jesus or against Jesus. That's, that's the way it is. And on that same occasion, says there were some present who reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Some Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their, their sacrifices. Here's the political and religious backstory of this account. At the time, Jerusalem was running out of water. There was a severe water shortage in Jerusalem, and the city literally was not going to survive, excuse me, without more water. So it fell upon Pilate, the governor, to solve this crisis. Now, in Pilate's mind, being a Roman, the, the solution was simple. You build a 20-mile Roman aqueduct that comes up from the southeast near Bethlehem, incidentally, and you bring water into the city. The Romans do it all the time. If you travel in that part of the world or in, in Rome or, or in the Middle East or in Israel, you see these aqueducts that the Romans built all over the landscape. The Romans do it all the time. They just build these aqueducts out of, of stone and concrete, and they bring in the water. But the question is always, how do you pay for it? How do you pay for it? That's the question at every city council meeting. That's the question at every zoning commission that I have, have presided over. At every public hearing, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? Now, Pilate knew that there was no way he could squeeze any more money or any more taxes out of the people. So Pilate went to where the money was. And where was that? We've already talked about that. The money was in the temple treasury that was controlled and literally owned by Annas the high priest. So Pilate went to Annas the high priest, or actually had Annas come to him at the Antonio Fortress that's just right there off of the, the north uh, west side of the Temple Mount. And he asked Annas, he said, this is going to be good for the people. We need the water. Would you pay for it out of the temple treasury? And Annas refused. Nobody was going to take his money. So Pilate raided the temple treasury anyway, and he took the money that was controlled by Annas and his racket. And so Annas then told all the people that, that, uh, that Pilate had raided the temple treasury. 
And so thousands of Jews from Galilee protested at the temple. Now I have to show a little picture here, as it were, because uh, there's the temple grounds, and then at the northwest corners, there's the Antonio Fortress, by which the walls are so high that it looks down over into the Temple Mount. And so these Galileans were protesting that the Temple Treasury had been raided by Pilate. And they were trying to get Pilate, don't do this evil thing as they saw it. Don't desecrate the Temple Treasury. I think it's interesting that it was Galileans who were protesting because the Jews in Jerusalem knew that it was all a sham, that all the money was controlled by Annas anyway. But the Galileans came from out of town and they protested and kept this almost right at the time going on right below Pilate's nose as he was looking down into the Temple Mount. So what did Pilate do? He ordered soldiers to dress like Jews. And they infiltrated the crowd of protesters. And when they were given a signal, they took out clubs from under their robes and started beating the protesters. And it turned into a bloody riot in battle where hundreds were killed and hundreds more were interested, injured. So to some who were listening to Jesus that one day, they wanted to know what Jesus thought about this. It would be very similar to asking Jesus, okay, what do you think about what happened in Washington, D.C. at the Capitol building this last week? And Jesus' answer must have been a shock to them. Verse 2 of Luke chapter 13. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What the world needs when times are bad is not new political or religious programs. The world needs a word from God. The world needs a word from God. And that word is a call to repentance, a call to repentance. Back to the third chapter of Luke, speaking of John. Luke records in verse three, and he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. John's ministry was to prepare the people for the coming of Christ, to prepare the way. The angel told his father, Zacharias, that John would turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. He would be a forerunner before the Lord in the spirit of Elijah. As Isaiah had prophesied, the voice of one crying into the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. And the prophecy here reflects a really neat picture. It was the widespread custom that when an eminent ruler was about to visit a city, 
the citizens would construct a broad, smooth road so the ruler could enter the city with due pomp and with due dignity. But Isaiah's vision was far grander than that. It was not a grand entrance into a city, but it was a thoroughfare through a mountainous wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. The Lord is coming. Fill every ravine. Every mountain and hill shall be leveled. Straighten every road. Get rid of all the potholes. In other words, make it smooth and easy. Remove every obstacle for the Lord's coming. That was John's ministry in a nutshell. He saw mountains flattened and valleys filled so that a broad superhighway would be ready for the Messiah King. But it's not a physical road. It's not the civil infrastructure of a road or an aqueduct. It's the infrastructure of the heart. And this is the point. We don't want to miss this. The great highway that John was building was one of repentance. Repentance. It's a call to repentance. It's the way of repentance. He came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The result of John's preaching, full of the Spirit of God, was that multitudes visibly fell under conviction, resulting in many repenting of their sins and then asking John for baptism. So in the preparatory sense, when Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand, that was Jesus' first message, people's hearts were prepared to receive him because they had already repented, many of them, and were ready to receive Christ. In Luke chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And as we saw in Luke chapter 13, both verses 3 and 5, he said, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. The ministry of both John and Jesus was a preaching ministry, and they were preaching repentance. And we're told in Acts chapter 20 that the apostles also preached repentance. Acts chapter 20, verse 21 says, Paul preached repentance toward God and faith toward Lord Jesus Christ. Quite frankly, today in our modern world, repentance is not a popular topic. Not a popular topic. But repentance is critical in our salvation. And when we talk about repentance, what we're talking about basically, essentially, is a repudiation of sin. It's a repudiation of, of our old life, of one's old life. It's, it's coming to a point where we reevaluate ourselves and where we say, I, I look at myself and I see my sin and I don't like what I see. I resent the sin. I don't like the guilt. I don't like the shame. I don't like the fear. I don't like the anxiety that comes as a result of my sin. I live in fear of the consequence of sin which is the eternal judgment in hell. And I say to myself, I am wretched. I look at my own life, I see my sin, and I want to be delivered from it. That is a repentant attitude. It's looking at your life, and instead of loving darkness and hating light, you begin to hate darkness. 
You hate the darkness. You have begun to repudiate your own life. You desire to be delivered from the dominance of sin and its consequence. And that is a penitent attitude. And true repentance never exists except in partnership with true faith. True repentance never exists except in partnership with true faith. Paul preached repentance towards God and faith toward or in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever there is true faith, whenever we believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, whenever there is true saving faith, there's also true repentance. They go together. They're two sides of the same coin. You cannot have faith in Jesus Christ apart from repentance from your sin. You cannot have true repentance from sin apart from your true faith in Jesus Christ. Why not? Because it's one work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts the sinner of sin. And it's the Holy Spirit that moves the sinner in faith towards Christ. That is the way of the Lord. So the great highway John was building was one of repentance. It was a call to repentance. John the Baptist was saying, mend not your roads, but your lives. To put it in terms of American geography, repentance removes the obstacles. It, it flattens the Rocky Mountains. It fills in the death valleys of our lives so that Christ can have full access. Full access. Repentance invites the fullness of God into our lives and into our hearts. The fullness of God. Repentance and faith are linked. They are flip sides of the same coin. Repentance has the main idea of turning or changing one's thinking or behavior. It involves recognizing our sin, our alienation from God, rather than continuing in the same direction of self-will and disobedience. In our American society now, it's all about self, isn't it? It's all about what I want. It's all about what I need. It's all about what I get. It's all about my rights over everybody else's rights. Rights, rights, rights. But in repentance, we turn back to God and appeal to his mercy. His mercy. And then faith is the hand that receives God's mercy or grace. Faith lays hold of Jesus Christ as the perfect substitute who died for our sins. And where there is faith and true repentance, there is the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, some have taught here that it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. That's the baptism that saves us. You know, we're baptized for our sins, we say. Well, that's a misunderstanding of the word for. You know, it's kind of like the guy in the Old West that uh, saw a wanted poster, and it said on the poster, wanted for robbery. And he went and applied for the job. <laughs> no, it's not so he can be the robber. Here, the word for means on account of. John came preaching our baptism repentance on account of our forgiveness of sin. Because when we repent, when we have faith in Christ, then our sins are forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, our sins are, are tossed away from us, are cast away from us. They're, they're cast into the depths of the sea. 
Forgiveness means that God releases us from the penalty of our sins, that we never have to pay the price for our sins because Jesus bore the penalty for our sins. And we are trusting him. So in summarizing the gospel message of the good news to the disciples after his resurrection, Jesus said, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in the name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This is the good news in bad times. This is the way of the Lord that John was talking about, that Isaiah was talking about. Did you know that before Christians were called Christians, they were called the way, the way, capital W-A-Y, the way, followers of the way. We are followers of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. But the phrase, the way, comes from Isaiah. Prepare the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord. That should always be foremost in our hearts and in our minds. What are the implications of this when we enter into the dark political and societal religious environment of our day? What are the implications of this? We are the way. We are representatives of the way. We are repentant people. We are people of faith. We are the way. When I moderated a, a zoning commission meeting or a public hearing, I was a representative of the way. That was my primary responsibility. When we enter in the political and social arena, that supersedes all else. When we come on social media, that supersedes all else. We are the way. We are followers of the way. You know, when my oldest son went to college in the Chicago area, that was when email was first coming on board, as it were. You know, email was a brand new thing. And, and my son was all those hundreds of miles away. And, you know, and uh, we, we had email. And every time that uh, I would close one of my emails, I said, put two things that I said to him. I said, keep the faith and remember who you are. Keep the faith and remember who you are. We are the way. We prepare the way for Christ and we are followers of the way. And we're going to have to leave it right there. Next time we will see from the example of John's preaching how this works out in the religious arena, in the political arena even, and uh, in the our ordinary ordinary lives. It's such a special passage of scripture that we'll look at next time. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have saved us, you have loved us. We ask for your mercy upon us these days as well, Father. Father, I pray that you would have mercy upon our nation with all the upheaval, with the pandemic, with the, the, the social and uh, political upheaval on both the right and the left. You know, it's coming from so many different directions. And Father, Father, I just pray that uh, 
you would be at work, not only in our hearts and our lives, but uh, in the lives of people who make important decisions right now, Father, for our country. Father, I pray that you would bless America. But Father, I also pray that uh, in all of this, people would come to an understanding and recognition of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And for this we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.